Welcome to Meet the Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. We gathered a panel of community-based urologists, radiation oncologists, and medical oncologists to present real but de-identified cases from their practices to our faculty of Drs. Laurie Klotz, Anthony D'Amico, Dan Petrolak, Judd Mole, and William O. To begin, medical oncologist Dr. Atif Hussein presents a patient to Drs. D'Amico, Klotz, and Petrolak. This patient had PSA recurrence two years after primary radiation therapy. My patient is a 71-year-old man who is a retired automaker who in December 1999 was diagnosed as having prostate adenocarcinoma when he was found to have a PSA of 7.1. Before that, he had PSAs, and over two years prior to that, they were clearly going up. He had multiple biopsies from the prostate, and he turned out to have a Gleason score of 7, 4 plus 3. At that time, he was completely asymptomatic. I didn't take care of him at that time, but he was offered surgery versus radiation therapy versus a clinical trial. He chose external beam radiotherapy, and he did well. His PSA nadired six to nine months later at actually 0.2. He did well between 1999, December, and June 2001, when his PSA was going up clearly, and in June 2001, his PSA was 67 completely asymptomatic, had a bone scan at that time that was negative, but I don't think he had CAT scans. He was started on Lupron every three months. And over a matter of 12 to 15 months, his PSA nadir, the lowest was 3.1. We know what his PSA doubling time was at the time that he was started on therapy? It was around nine months. About nine months. Anthony, can you comment on the issue of PSA doubling time and absolute level of PSA? When the PSA doubling time is very long, generally greater than a year, you can have absolute levels of PSA that are high, like this, 6.7, and still have a very low risk of micrometastatic disease, mainly because the rate of rise of the PSA gives you a good indication of whether the disease is still local or whether it's distant. With a doubling time of nine months, which is considered short, the PSA of 6.7 is concerning, but not surprising. And so in this setting, the possibility of having micrometastatic disease is quite high, and getting imaging studies at this point, while they may not disclose anything, because the absolute level is still low compared to what you'd see for positive scans, it might be 5% or so, it is reasonable to start hormonal therapy at this point. Is there an absolute level of PSA that even in the face of a slow doubling time gets you nervous enough to start therapy? There's no absolute level of PSA that one can hang their hat on as to saying, do we have all our own discretion? I have my own. I'll tell you the number in a minute. But when the doubling time is less than 12 months, I will always start the hormonal therapy before the PSA reaches 10. And that's the way I ran the randomized trial of radiation with without hormonal therapy. We had a rule, which was PSA of 10, we start salvage hormonal therapy. That was picked basically because there was one study in which if you looked at bone scans at PSA levels of 10 post-radiation with or without hormonal therapy, they were rarely positive, and I wanted to catch people before they became positive. Now, in the setting of a very high PSA doubling time, I have a whole group of men in their early 80s that I've been following. This PSA has been rising very slowly many, many years after radiation, and their doubling times are 18, 24, sometimes longer months. I'll follow them, their PSAs, well into their 40s, 50s, 60 level before I consider hormonal therapy because the side effects of hormonal therapy, particularly in men of advanced age, are far more significant than they would be in men who are earlier age. 
This case, though, I agree that, you know, with this doubling time of nine months and a PSA of 6.7, it's about the time I would also consider hormonal therapy. Laurie, what are your thoughts about this algorithm? There are two studies that address this issue, what the PSA threshold would be, and none of them are perfect. And one is from the Department of Defense, Judd Moule, that suggests it should be around 5 or 10 in high-risk patients, meaning doubling time less than a year or Gleason 8 or higher. So that's consistent with what Anthony just espoused. And the other is the recent EORTC 30891 study, which was close to 1,000 patients untreated locally, randomized between early and delayed hormonal therapy. And it showed a minor survival benefit of 11% in the early treatment group which was actually not thought to be due to improved prostate cancer mortality, which is one of the interesting things about the study. But the point is, the patients who seemed to benefit from early therapy were men over 70 who had a PSA above 50, or men under 70 who had a PSA around 20. And I have more or less adopted that approach, plus the earlier non-randomized Department of Defense study approach, which suggests somewhere between 5 and 10 for high-risk patients. So basically what I do is old men, over 70, slow doubling time, risk factors not too serious, I wait, and I come in around 30 to 40 or 50. Younger men around 20, high-risk patients around 10. How do patients respond to waiting, particularly educated patients who are getting out on their web and become educated about the disease? There's a range, and there's obviously some people who want to get treated and they want to get their PSA down. But men, first of all, who've experienced hormonal therapy love to delay treatment, and they like to go off therapy. And men who can appreciate what the side effects are, and I think the side effect issue has taken on a much higher profile in patients' minds than it did a few years ago. They're much more aware of it. You know, bone mineral density issue, metabolic syndrome issue is starting to get some traction. So I find no problem with patients delaying. In fact, I have some patients whose PSA has been, you know, 60 to 70, and I say, look, you need to be treated, and they have refused. And that's not so unusual. Actually, a number of these patients have done remarkably well. Their PSA has remained stable in the range of Hmm. 60 to 70 for years. So, you know, these patients don't always progress the way we expect them to. Dan, what about the issue of doing research in this window when you mm-hmm. have a patient who's got PSA progression, slow doubling time, right. you're not going to treat them? That would seem to be a good time to maybe look at new agents. Is that being done? It's being done. There have been some studies that have looked at various agents, vaccine studies that have looked at this. There was actually a good presentation at ASCO about giving a course of hormone therapy and then giving dendritic cell therapy afterwards. But you have to be cautious with these types of trials, particularly phase two studies. Phil Kantoff's group has reported that there can be variability in the PSA doubling time. And if you look at the doubling time as an endpoint, you need a control group of patients to be sure that you're not, that there is truly a treatment effect. But I think it's a really a great opportunity to look at these agents, especially in patients who would like to avoid androgen blockade. You would think also maybe in phase one situations where new agents are being studied for toxicity, is that something that would these kinds of patients go on that type of study? You want to select your agents properly. I mean, if it's a non-toxic drug that you're really not concerned about major toxicities. I mean, the analogy would be those types of drugs that you would do in healthy volunteers. That would be an appropriate thing to evaluate. But here you've got a long course for these patients. You don't want to do something that's damaging or something that's fatal in this situation. One other point back to what Laurie was saying a moment ago about 
convincing a patient to go on androgen blockade, it's certainly easier to convince a patient if they've become impotent from their primary therapy, whether it be radiation therapy or surgery, that often is taken off the table. And once that's off the table, it's a much easier discussion. Anthony, a couple of really interesting things have come up in the last six months. One is your work looking at duration of androgen suppression and anti-tumor effect. And I thought it was really fascinating. Maybe you can comment on it. But sort of the complementary issue has been the increasing awareness, as Dan mentioned, about the issue of metabolic syndrome and maybe cardiovascular risk. And these are kind of, to me, seems like a lot more attention and thought has gone into this in the last six months or a year. Can you kind of summarize those two issues? I'll summarize them, then I'll talk about it in the context of this patient, just to understand. He's 71 now. Correct. So the two issues that Neil was just discussing is, one, there appears to be some evidence, and this evidence is at the level of hypothesis generating because it's an observational study, that you can give a group of men the same amount of hormonal therapy. In this case, it was six months of combined hormonal blockade. And not surprisingly, in the older men, the duration of testosterone suppression that they sustain after stopping the six months of hormonal therapy is longer when they're older at the time they get it and shorter if they're younger when they get it. Said another way is in older men, a fixed course of hormonal therapy suppresses testosterone for a longer period of time. So that's not surprising. We've actually known that for some time. Men go through andropause, the latex cells start to degenerate, and they're more susceptible to the effects of androgen ablation. Well, the interesting thing was that in this study, there was a test done, a statistical test, to see if that length of time that a man's testosterone stayed suppressed below his baseline level was that length of time related to whether they subsequently went on to die of prostate cancer or not. And these were people with intermediate and high-risk disease. These are men with the high-risk men, so the Gleason 8 to 10s, and they were men who all received radiation and six months of hormonal therapy. And what there appeared to be was an association. I want to be clear that what an association means is that there's a relationship between two things. It doesn't mean cause and effect. So the association was that the longer a man's testosterone stayed suppressed below his baseline after discontinuing the six months of hormonal therapy, the less likely he was to die of prostate cancer. And so said in a different way is it wasn't how much hormonal therapy they received. It was how long it lasted that provided the cancer-specific survival benefit or not. And that was the result of the study. And it's interesting because it argues that older men may need less hormonal therapy to get the benefit that we've shown in randomized trials. Now, coming then to the next issue Should I just is, say, too, that the other flip side of that is, you know, I looked at that and said, do the younger men maybe need, need longer more. suppression? Well, mm. right. So remember, this, again, I want to be clear, this is an association. It's not a cause and effect issue, but it's an interesting observation Could I just divert out to Dan just for a second, too? You know, being in medical oncology, you're also very tuned into what's going on with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And granted, these are two different tumors, but it's been interesting to see how the sensitivity of the issue of duration of hormonal therapy in breast cancer has changed. Now we have a trial looking at five versus 10 years. You know, the whole issue of how long, you know, does hormonal therapy work has really changed dramatically in the last two, three years in breast cancer. Do you think that this type of paradigm could potentially be applied to prostate cancer? I think absolutely. I think we need to really truly assess. I mean, prostate cancer is a moving target because the population is changing. The population is aging as we know it. Life expectancy is longer. And we're also seeing these issues about diabetes and hypertension come forth. 
So we're really looking at competing causes of morbidity and mortality. And you're balancing off your risk over time of developing fatal prostate cancer versus other fatal complications of the hormone therapy. Certainly, we have to come up with some sort of risk assessment type of nomogram that's going to look at the other causes of death in relationship to prostate cancer. And I think that that's going to be an important issue. Laurie, what were your thoughts about these data? It relates to the issue of intermittent therapy. So we have two trials that are reported now that are relatively mature. One is Portuguese, one is German, that really show no difference between intermittent and continuous therapy. But your study, to me, implies that the patients have more rapid recovery of testosterone are having an adverse effect on disease progression, which, as I understand it, undermines the case for intermittent therapy. Do you agree with that, Anthony? The men who stayed suppressed for more than two years in the Gleason 8 to 10 group didn't have any observed cancer deaths, whereas the ones who rebounded quickly did. So you could make the argument that, and the ones who rebounded quickly were younger, and the ones who rebounded slowly were older. So you could argue one of two ways. Either there's something adverse associated with a rapid testosterone rebound, or you could just say, well, you measure their testosterone levels, you see them start to rebound, you give them another shot of Lupron, and that's where the intermittent argument comes in. Now, to prove that that intermittent approach, as opposed to just continuously doing it throughout the whole period Mm -hmm. of time, is the same, that requires a prospective study. Well, just to make the point that true intermittent therapy means giving the patient a period when their testosterone is recovered. So intermittent therapy, meaning only treating when the testosterone begins to rise again, is really just sort of another way of giving LHRH analogs that happens to be intermittent because we know patients don't need them continuously. But it's not, it's obviously from a physiological perspective, it's not true intermittent therapy. So, I mean, it's interesting, but uh, I think it has to stand against the fact that the more data we get, the more it looks like patients don't necessarily need to have continual PSA or testosterone suppression to do well. Anthony, can you comment on the issue of metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular risk? We know the bone density issues. After a year of hormonal therapy, men's bone mineral density drops and can put them at risk. They are at risk for osteopenia, but could be at risk for increased issue with fracture. The other issue is we also know that on hormonal therapy, men develop insulin resistance, which means that you know their insulin levels are rising, but they don't respond in terms of the glucose level, and eventually they can become frank diabetics. We also know that their cholesterol profiles become less favorable. So the issue then became is, does this put them at any risk for increased risk of cardiovascular events? And there are three pieces of evidence now. One goes back to the Nancy Keating, Matt Smith paper from last year in JCO, which looked at the CR Medicare database and saw an increased number of admissions to the hospital for cardiovascular events in men undergoing LHRH agonist versus not. The next level of evidence was the CAPTURE database, which found a similar finding, except now it's fatal MIs that were occurring. And in that analysis, they adjusted for some of the known coronary artery disease risk factors, such as smoking, pre-existing heart disease, and diabetes. And then most recently, there's a pooled analysis of randomized trials and men got radiation with or without a short course of hormonal therapy. And in that pooled analysis, which is probably the strongest level of evidence because you've got a randomized treatment arms that you're comparing where you'd expect the coronary artery disease factors, other risk factors to be balanced, there was a shortening of the time to a fatal heart attack in the men who got a short course of hormonal therapy who were older, who were over the age of 65, 
or who had pre-existing coronary disease or had risk factors for coronary disease. What were the sort of absolute numbers that came out of that in terms of what you would say to a patient either without, you know, of course, age has to be factored in, prior history, but what's the ballpark of what we're talking about? The overall number was 2% increased risk because obviously if it was 10%, we would have never expected to see a survival benefit when you added hormones to radiation. We've seen about a 10 to 15% benefit in survival when you add hormones to radiation. So this is a 2% decrement on a 10 to 15% lead. And so the recommendation, and now we get back to this case. So here's a guy who's 71 who needs the hormonal therapy because his PSA doubling time is short, his PSA level is high. Just to say a few other words, his nadir was in six to nine months. Actually, a quick time to nadir is not good. Longer times to nadir are better in terms of prognosis. The fact that he was a four plus three, he got radiation alone. At that time, that was the standard of care, but now we know we would have added hormonal therapy up front. But that time, we didn't know that. And then his nadir on Lupron's 3.1, which is even a more ominous sign. So he's gotten worse and worse as he's gone along. This guy is going to die of prostate cancer, very likely, unless he has bad coronary disease or bad diabetes. He's got two, three, four years left, maybe. And so in this gentleman, you could screen him for coronary disease. And if he had it, you could address it. But he's going to need the hormonal therapy. And just coming back to Dr. Klotz's point before about the intermittent versus continuous and this observation, it's very possible, and there's lots of questions to answer yet, that in younger men, that continuous is necessary, and in older men, maybe not. And that may be, in those intermittent versus continuous studies, it'd be interesting to look at the age breakout, because younger men may actually, on an intermittent protocol, do worse, because they rebound very quickly, and they don't have the therapeutic effect, whereas older men may make no difference. And the quality of life needs to be looked at, you know, are these older men really getting the benefit of intermittent versus continuous? I don't know the answer, but I just... Has that been looked at, Laurie? Well, there's data on PSA recovery after various treatment intervals. And we did a phase two study with eight months of induction therapy. And by four months, 50% of men were back to baseline. And another roughly 45% were at more than 50% of baseline. Only 3% remained at castrate levels of testosterone for a prolonged period of time. It was age-dependent, for sure. But still, the majority of men, and in the Portuguese study, I think the median age is late 60s. The German study, somewhere around the same. So these are not, by and large, octogenarians who are being studied. They're kind of typical... European prostate cancer patients where, you know, screening efforts are not that widespread. So they tend to be patients presenting in their 60s or early 70s with locally advanced disease. Which is the same as the radiation-managed subset. So it wouldn't surprise me that in that group, that intermittent continuous would be equal if you believe this concept of, as you get older, the little bit of hormonal therapy you get lasts longer. Let's go back to the case and see what happened next. Like many predicted, the patient didn't do very well between August 03, his PSA started going up again and Kesodex was added. He did not do well. He has been completely asymptomatic. When I say he's not doing well in terms of his PSA, the PSA kept on going up. And in fact, in January 04, which is only six months from adding Kesodex, his PSA was 80, 80. And at that time, he started having right hip pain. The bone scan showed Compared to the one in one multiple abnormal sites in the hip, the spine, the ribs, MRI of the hip, large lytic and plastic lesion in the right hip, and at that time he was started on external beam radiotherapy for palliation. 
And we wanted to ask Dan what he'd be thinking about at this point. Several things. Firstly, he should start on a bisphosphonate. He's now hormone refractory. He's failed one secondary manipulation, I should say, more accurately. And the data basically show that patients who are progressing on androgen blockade have a lower rate of skeletal-related events if they're placed on a bisphosphonate, namely zoledronic acid. So that's the first thing I would consider in this patient. I think it's appropriate to radiate this patient as well. I'd check to be sure that that hip lesion is stable and that he doesn't have a potential fracture in the hip and need for stabilization. I think once the radiation therapy is complete, I would consider starting him on chemotherapy at this point. What specific chemotherapy? Specifically docetaxel and prednisone. What would you be saying to him in terms of what to expect, both in terms of benefits and risks? Well, the benefits that I would outline to the patient would include improvement of his bone pain, improvement in survival. We know that docetaxel-based therapy will improve survival overall by 20 to 24%. We also know that in symptomatic patients that there are improvement in quality of life parameters. So those are the three positives I would stress to the patient. Before we go to the negatives, what specific likelihood would you say that he'd have relief of bone pain, improvement in terms of pain? It's probably about 40%, 40% improvement in bone pain overall. And what would the downside be? The downsides would be possibility of neutropenia and neutropenic fevers, fluid retention, fatigue, weight gain from the fluid retention, and potential nail bed changes as well as neuropathy. Those are the major side effects that we see. And the patient turns back to you and says, I've heard about chemotherapy. I know people who've gotten chemotherapy. They lose their hair. They're very, very sick and disabled. It's worse than the disease. How would you respond in this situation? Well, I would respond by saying that chemotherapy is different for different diseases. I think a lot of patients extrapolate from multiple drug regimens to a single drug regimen such as this. And one thing that I've often found helps is I find a patient of mine who's had a good response. Patient-to-patient contact is very, very important in reassuring a patient that the view that the physician or the nurse practitioner has is valid from the patient's standpoint. I've often done that to assist a patient who may be concerned about the side effects of chemotherapy. But I just keep on reemphasizing, you know, anecdotal stories that we've had with patients who've had significant improvements in bone pain or other quality of life parameters. I always like to ask people who deal with medical oncologists but aren't medical oncologists how they see, you know, the risk-benefit ratio. And I'm curious, Anthony, in general, for docetaxel-based chemotherapy in this situation, what do you see when your patients come back and also the people that you actually are following on your trials, et cetera, more globally in terms of impact on their quality of life and their lifestyle? We're running a phase three study where we look at the use of docetaxel in conjunction with radiation and hormonal therapy in the neoadjuvant concurrent setting. And I've been impressed having treated anal cancer, having treated head and neck cancer, having treated esophageal cancer with combined chemoradiation, and the radiation oncologist, medical oncologist know what I'm talking about. The mucositis that people get, you know, is horrendous. I've been impressed by how little I've seen with concurrent taxotere and radiation in this setting. And we're using a pelvic field, you know, for the first five weeks and then a cone down to the prostate seminal vesicles afterwards. So what we've seen specifically is there is some, exactly what Dan described, some mild hair loss. They're already on hormonal therapy. The additional fatigue from taxotere I have not been able to discern compared to what they already have from the hormonal therapy. Yeah, there are some nail bed changes. We've had seen one patient out of 60 that we've treated so far with a neuropathy. And this seems to substantiate the phase two studies in this setting as well, the two of which have been reported or published. 
I have seen more acute GI issues, so a little bit more in the way of loose bowels, which have required more than just a bulking agent. Typically, I go to something like Imodium, and in one case, Lamotil. I have one person who I braked during the pelvic field because he had clinically what I would have considered signs of radiation enteritis, one, and that's out of about 60. And so what we did was we coned down to his prostate field, completed that without a problem because the small bowel's out of that field, and then came back and coned up later and finished the pelvis, and he completed the full course with the concurrent treatment going on. It has not been anything like what I would have expected. I was preparing the clinical team for a lot worse GI toxicity. Now, what I don't know is the late effects. So I don't know what it will look like in terms of radiation proctopathy down the road, and the phase two studies haven't published on that. I don't know if there's going to be any more in terms of urethral stricture from prostate RT and taxotere and the hormonal therapy. That I don't know. But the acute effects I consider mild and easily manageable. Yes, there's been some count changes too, but none of these count changes have led to hospitalizations for febrile neutropenia, although there have been several 10-15% grade 4 myelosuppression by numbers, but not by clinical findings. Laurie, what about the risk-benefit trade-off in metastatic disease where we're in a palliative situation? What's your view of this from outside of medical oncology in terms of what chemotherapy offers in this situation? Yeah, I think that the risk-benefit trade-off is very favorable. And here's a patient who fulfills all the criteria for treatment. He's symptomatic. He's got advanced disease. He's not that old. There's absolutely no question this patient should have taxotere-based chemotherapy at this point, and he's likely to benefit. In fact, the epidemiologic statistics suggest that a lot of patients like this aren't getting chemotherapy. And I think that the message needs to be symptomatic, metastatic, hormone refractory prostate cancer patients should be getting taxotere-based chemotherapy. Our recent patterns of care study where we surveyed radiation oncologists, urologists, both those in practice as well as clinical investigators, one of the things that we found that I was kind of surprised that in all four of those groups, to varying extent, we said, what fraction of your patients with metastatic prostate cancer see a medical oncologist? And it was anywhere from 60 to 80%. It wasn't any, you know, I thought, you know, I can imagine there might be some very old, sick patients who might not want to talk to an oncologist, but it seemed a little bit low, and that kind of corresponds with what you just said. Mm -hmm. What do you think is behind that, Laurie? It may be access in some cases. It comes down to relationships, turf issues, and those should not intrude into patient care, even though, you know, they exist everywhere. But I think practice needs to change. Dan, my hypothesis was that in the past, you know, maybe we didn't really have that much to offer. I mean, really, till we got to this new generation with the docetaxel trials. It's interesting to see how the analogy plays out in bladder cancer and prostate cancer. So in the late 70s, early 80s, we had very few agents that were active in bladder cancer. Then the MVAC regimen came along, and that was really the first major push with a chemotherapeutic regimen. And I remember Alan Yagoda telling me he had difficulty convincing people during that period of time to refer patients with bladder cancer. So if you were in a room with a group of urologists and you ask them or present a case of an elderly patient and say, this patient has metastatic bladder cancer, would you refer him to a medical oncologist? The answer is unanimously yes. And basically, that evolution has come forth because we've shown a survival benefit. It's taken a long time to get people comfortable to chemotherapy in an elderly group of patients predominantly. Now, what we've seen in prostate cancer is an evolution from mitoxantrone to docetaxel to newer treatments that have gone forward. And it's not going to be something that happens overnight. I mean, it's something that you're going to need to see patients respond, do better, 
And that's why it's important that the urologists are involved in the care, because then they can get the impression that patients are doing better. Yeah, I think, I mean, medical oncologists want to be transparent about what they're doing and, you know, get input about that. Why don't you bring us up to date on this patient, Teeth? So, like, everybody predicted the patient was started on zoledronic acid every four weeks and docetaxel with a small dose of prednisone. Docetaxel was started at 75 milligram per meter square, and because he had radiation to the pelvis twice, I gave him colon stimulating factor, although I agree the incidence of neutropenic fever in the randomized study was low. The patient did extremely well. He received a total of six cycles of chemotherapy, and his PSA dropped down from the high 80s to 9 nanogram per ml. His pain disappeared during this time. Casodex was stopped, but Lupron was continued. The patient did not want more chemotherapy after six cycles, although he knew his PSA is still nine because he really felt great. He had many trips to make, and I kept him on small dose of prednisone because his only disease other than prostate cancer is osteoarthritis, degenerative joint disease. And once I started him on prednisone, he felt so great, he wouldn't let me stop it completely <laughs> for obvious reason. He finished the chemotherapy July 04, and after that, he continued on Lopron and zoledronic acid. Over a year, his PSA continued in the low teens, and in July 2006, now this is two years and two months, his PSA was 54, and he started having some discomfort in the back. We repeated his bone scan, and that showed some new foci of metastatic disease, clearly not from the Zometa. And at that time, we did a CAT scan, that was his first CAT scan, and it showed only bone lesions, but no visceral disease. His liver and his lungs are normal. At that time, I talked to him. He started having some symptoms, not really severe enough to radiate him. And we restarted him on docetaxel in July of 06. I thought he did well for two years. And he did very well on it. He would come only once every three weeks and no side effects. He received a total of eight cycles of docetaxel starting in July 06. And he finished in January 07. And his PSA dropped down from 54 to 11.2. Completely asymptomatic. I told him, look, it seems we are going through what we went through two years ago. At this time, he wanted something else to be done, if there was something else to be done. And in fact, I called on a couple of people and we placed him recently in February on ketoconazole and prednisone. Therefore, he is now completely asymptomatic on ketoconazole, small dose of prednisone, and with zoledronic acid, although actually last week his creatinine pumped from 1.4 to 1.9, and I omitted one dose of zoledronic acid, and a couple of days ago his creatinine went down back to 1.5. So, Laurie, in our colon think tank, we were talking about the Optimox strategy of stop-and-go chemotherapy in colon cancer, and, you know, we were talking about intermittent antigen deprivation, and, you know, there's kind of a lesson there. This almost sounds like intermittent chemotherapy. What do you think, Laurie? Well, it's consistent with the concept of cancer as a chronic disease, disease management. Certainly, my understanding is that most patients who've seen a drug like Taxotere before don't have much of a response the second time around. Although he wasn't stopped because of progression, correct? Not he stopped because at six, he said, you know what? He feel very good. He uh -huh. really needed to do a lot of things of traveling. And I said, it's okay. So this maybe those, Dan, are a little bit different than retreating somebody who progressed mm, in the right. past. 
Right. It's a different situation. In fact, in our experience, in our phase two ester mustine docetaxel study, the issue about when to stop a patient on chemotherapy is very, very complex. And we generally stop the patients if their PSA went to less than four. You stopped it at an nadir of nine. And nobody knows what the optimal way to do this is. But one of the interesting things from your case, I mean, I think two interesting points are number one, this patient is clearly responding to ketoconazole, correct? Oh, it's this, extremely this ex- well now. It's, excellent it's, response. His PSA is mm-hmm. almost one for the first time since I've been seeing him. We don't know the optimal sequence to give these drugs. In fact, I have a case that I have often used in several of my talks about a gentleman who had a great response to docetaxel and prednisone, then came to see us for a phase one study, failed two phase one studies, and was in flora DIC with a PSA of 700, castrate testosterone level, and we started him on nizoral and cortisone. His DIC resolved, his PSA went down to 10, and we got another year and a half of life out of him. So really, we don't know the optimal ways of treating these patients. The second point that's also important from this is we really don't know how long we should continue zoledronic acid. We know that the bone sites are saturated fairly early on, but this gentleman is beginning to develop some renal insufficiency, and I probably would consider not giving him any further zoledronic acid at this point. One other thing that has been very neglected in prostate cancer has been the use of radioisotopes as a consolidation therapy. Sheeman, too, at MD Anderson, has done some great work combining chemotherapy and actually inducing patients with strontium and an adriamycin-based chemotherapeutic regimen, then randomizing them to further treatment afterwards and shown a survival advantage for the isotopes. Mike Morris has shown that you can safely give docetaxel at nearly full dosages with samarium. So this is an area that we really have not exploited or really fully investigated and needs further evaluation. And this issue of the optimal sequence, obviously we can use the retrospectoscope. This guy, you know, when we presented him, your immediate thought was docetaxel. It sounded like kind of a situation that didn't seem too good. In retrospect, you think maybe he would have been better off getting ketoconazole at that point? Really, it's hard to say. Who knows, maybe you killed off that clonal population that was sensitive to docetaxel, and now you're left with the clonal population that's sensitive to nizoral. This is where I'm so excited about the circulating tumor cell technology. If we can phenotype these cells before we put the patient on a treatment and predict how they're going to respond, it's going to make our jobs a lot easier. Atif, what was his life like on docetaxel? You know, relevant to what we were talking about in general, did he fit into that sort of a paradigm? Yeah, I agree with you, Neil. Probably in retrospect, he would have responded to ketoconazole very well two years ago. He continued to do everything he wanted to do. The only thing that was added on top of what he had is a little bit more fatigue. Really didn't have any nail changes, no GI symptoms, lost a little bit of the hair that he was still having. But the next time, the worst time was when he presented with the right hip pain. And his PSA was 90. I mean, he was like, Anthony, you said, I thought, my God, this guy is actually going to die. This would be worse than even a small cell how fast he progressed. He is currently doing well. He's very happy that he's responding, and I think with Zoledrinate probably will hold off now for a while. Any more comments on the case, Anthony? I'm impressed by the secondary response to the taxatier, and I'm happy to hear it for the patient's sake. Obviously, there's more to come to the story, but so far it sounds good. I don't know if anybody wants to mention the satroplatinum study. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask next to Dan is satroplatinum. There was some interesting data presented at ASCO. And, you know, would this maybe fit into this man's future? Certainly. So satroplatinum is an orally bioavailable platinum compound that has just been evaluated in 950 men internationally, randomized trial, two to one, satroplatinum combined with prednisone versus prednisone alone. 
and there is an improvement in time to progression of 33%. There is an improvement in pain parameters. There's an improvement in time to pain progression, as well as PSA and objective response rate. So we're excited about what we've seen with this drug in this phase three trial, and we're hopeful that we'll have a positive decision from the FDA this July. What about the issue that this man's concerned about fatigue? What do we know about that with satroplatin? The drug is extremely well tolerated. In fact, in our experience in patients who were on the study, it was very, very difficult to determine if they were on placebo or if they were on satroplatin. The only way that we could really tell is if they got out to you know five or six courses, you'd start to see some thrombocytopenia. But for the most part, they couldn't tell physically that they were more fatigued or less fatigued. I'm curious, Atif, what's this experience been like for the man in terms of sort of his coping with this situation, in terms of when he was extremely ill, now he's treated, now it's been some time that he's been successfully treated. How has his attitude towards this situation evolved over time? He lives alone. He is very active. He knows, he tells me, he knows the treatment affected his life in a good way. I mean, no question about it. He told me if it wasn't for the treatment two to three years ago, he wouldn't be alive with us. Therefore, he is very thankful that we gave him the treatment and it worked. And I think he just said that probably at the time when he was really very sick. But for now, he's a very compliant patient, very motivated for treatment, and he has no other comorbid conditions. Dr. Sununar? I have a question. I think docetaxel data is exciting. I seem to remember a trial when it was used neoadjuvantly before surgery, and it didn't show much tumor effect. Are we dealing with burden of disease and how much is there when we're expecting response rates or clinical benefit? Well, that was a Canadian trial that I was part of, and there were about 60 patients, and there were only two patients that were downstage to P0, meaning no evidence of disease, which was the primary endpoint. They got docetaxel alone or with hormones? No, with hormones. Right. Six months of docetaxel and hormonal therapy. But these were patients who had advanced disease to start out with. It was a high-risk cohort, and something like 12 of the 60, about 20%, although they weren't P0, they were reduced to a few scattered microfoci of cancer with negative margins. So actually, it was considered an encouraging trial, and encouraging enough that it's moved forward to a phase three trial that the CALGB is either about to open or has opened recently. So the neoadjuvant story definitely has some legs. What you'd expect with, given the hormone refractory data, the survival benefit, what you'd really expect is Taxotere to be able to debulk, but not to completely eliminate, except in some, there'll be some two P0s, not to completely eliminate macroscopic gross disease. And the setting where we're looking at it with radiation therapy, we know it's a radiosensitizer, so it'll further add to local control in addition to the hormonal therapy. And the hope, the rationale is, if you have micrometastatic disease in a Gleason 8 PSA 25 patient, you're giving them the hormonal therapy for micrometastatic androgen-dependent and taxotere for micrometastatic androgen-independent disease. And there probably is still yet cells that are refractory to both of those treatments, but it's nice to build upon, like we've done in breast cancer, to build upon the model of trying to sterilize the different populations of cells that may have already disseminated at the time of presentation. So I think that there will be more drugs to come. I mean, now we have satroplatinum that appears to be active even in men who have received taxotere. There's the concepts of immunotherapy, which there's a big phase three going on, and there was a smaller study that suggested a survival benefit with Provenge, you know, which is immunotherapy. So there are other things coming down the road that will have a chance 
chance to test. I think that in within a decade, we'll have in prostate cancer what we have in breast and colorectal cancer. We'll have active systemic agents that we'll be giving up front for men with high-risk localized disease. Atif? Actually, when I told the patient recently that I'm going to stop zoledronic acid, which he was happy about not coming to the office, he said, what about Lupron? He still goes to his urologist, whom he's fond of. They have a very good relationship. And he really challenged me and my nurse. It's like, you know, it's not enough. Why should I continue with Lupron? What would you tell him, Anthony? The issue is keeping the testosterone suppressed, to the best of our knowledge, is still important. The question that's been raised to me by medical oncologist Phil Kantoff in particular is, I wonder how many people at this age who have been on Lupron for this many years, if you took them off, would ever rebound their T level at all. But the thing is, how courageous is one going to be? How comfortable would you be in taking him off of the Lupron and then just measuring his T level? And if it starts to rebound, put him back on. Do we lose anything by doing that? Perhaps not, but I haven't seen people jumping to do that. What do you think, Dan? Well, I mean, I think there are two things. Number one, I agree with you that it is rare to see a 71-year-old man who's been on Lupron therapy for three or four years have a rise in serum testosterone, although I've seen it happen. It's rare. Secondly, there are LHRH receptors on prostate cancer cells, and that's really the only other argument I can see for continuing aside from the testosterone argument. Does this have an effect on proliferation? We really don't know this. In fact, there were some studies that were performed by Gary Miller before he passed away a number of years ago, looking at combinations of Lupron plus antiandrogens and cell lines, and he found synergy, and he attributed this to the LHRH receptor. There is conflicting data from ECOG and the Southwest Oncology Group about discontinuing hormone therapy. ECOG retrospectively looked at their hormone refractory prostate cancer trials and found there's a four-month difference in survival in favor of those patients who continued the LHRH, and SWOG found no difference. It may have been the eras. At that time, when a lot of those studies were done in ECOG, you were giving LHRH on a daily basis. It may have to do with a lot of different factors as far as compliance are concerned, so it's difficult to interpret anything from that data. Laurie? Well, on this question of whether you continue the hormone therapy, I'm very influenced by the preclinical data, you know, from the Sawyers group and others that androgen receptor is dramatically upregulated in hormone refractory prostate cancer. These cells are very sensitive to hormones. And you also, I'm sure I have anecdotal cases, and I'm sure you do as well, of patients in whom the hormone therapy is stopped and their PSA skyrockets with the additional proliferative stimulus of androgen. So it may be that not all patients need it. I mean, this is a separate issue from the question of whether it's needed to suppress testosterone. But allowing testosterone to rise, I think, is not good. Androgen-independent progression does not mean androgen-insensitive cells. It means that they are progressing in the absence of androgen. It doesn't mean that they no longer respond with increased proliferation rate. 